Welcome everyone back to The Bird Show. Today we have an exciting season finale. It's finally here, episode 12, ah! the wrap of season one. And in my excitement, I forgot to mention that today's co-host is Luca, the blue and gold macaw. Sorry, Luca. And I couldn't think of a better guest for today than the Carrillo Center for Nonviolence's very own Dr. Gabe Bradshaw. Thank you so much for being here. Hey there. We have a very exciting topic. It's the culmination of a lot of the things that we've been talking about here at The Bird Show. It's been inferred throughout the show, but today we're going to make it explicit. And that is that birds are greater than the sum of their fantastic senses, that they have unique identities and experiences, and I would say personalities. In other words, they're more than just creatures that act according to instinct. They have psyches. <laughs> Let's talk first about the brain structure of birds. Dr. Bradshaw, I know that you are very well versed in this topic. There's been studies that have come out that have shown that not only do they have analogous brain structures to human beings, but also they have greater neural density than mammals. Yeah, it, it's really kind of a fascinating story. Uh, I don't know how many years ago it was, but a group of neuroscientists and the list on the publication is uh, longer than this show is going to be. They basically did a lot of cross-comparison on neuroanatomy, that looking at what are the structures of bird brains and mammal brains, and they went on to look at reptile brain. This is specifically headed by Dr. Eric Jarvis, who was a professor. He was at Duke, and now he's at Rockefeller University. So this is someone who is leading in his field and very well thought of. What they came across, and they also looked at not just the structures of bird brains compared to mammals, but also what they call the neuroarchitecture. That is to say, looking at the shape and the composition of brain cells, of neurons. And what they found is that way back when, I don't know, maybe 100 years ago, or, or maybe a long time, a long time, <laughs> dog years, there was a mistake in terms of the nomenclature. So other scientists had been looking at bird brains and they made a mistake in terms of how they actually named the different kinds of cells. And as a result, birds were considered to be less than not having even analogous structure in the brain as mammals, but much less than. So this paper that came out basically said, no, discovered the nomenclature mistake, revised it and then came out with this sort of astounding, at least at the time, statement that bird brains, I paraphrase Eric, he actually almost says that, you know, that bird brains and reptile brains and mammal brains are basically the same. Mm -hmm. And so essentially that is foundational to the field of transspecies psychology, which is saying that all animals, which includes invertebrates, and is now starting to expand to include things like trees, but within the very conventional sideboards of neuroscience, all animals have the same brain structures and processes that humans do. Yeah, that's incredible and is a really vivid demonstration of how powerful language can be in terms of shaping the way that we see the world. And I had also seen a study out of Vanderbilt University in 2016 that was talking about the size of brains, talking about neural density in that regard. But I think it's also worth mentioning that even though Luca here has a brain about the size of a walnut, brain size isn't everything. Like you said, there's different neural structures inside the brain. And so you can actually get a lot more done a lot more efficiently in a smaller space if you have your neurotransmitters lined up that way. There's a lot of prejudice. I'm glad you brought that up because I've forgotten who wrote it, but they said size matters. 
and there's a lot of prejudice that is still really built in to science and then of course to the public in terms of bigger is better mm -hmm. and you have a lot of prejudice in terms of how people perceive anything anything so i think that's one of the reasons that elephants who are very charismatic iconic species and truly amazing civilizations are regarded as sort of so much more superior than say a deer or a smaller ungulate. Mm -hmm. That also brings up the idea that just as human beings, we consider our psyches to be more than just IQ or intelligence. It's almost something closer to what we would refer to as soul. Although I think that that kind of infers this sort of religious aspect that's maybe beyond what I'm talking about here specifically. But I think that that's really important to bring up because a lot of times in bird studies, they just talk about intelligence and problem solving and things like that, but they don't take into account all of the nuance, all of the feelings, thoughts, and all that, that goes together to make up psyche. And once you do realize or acknowledge that they have psyche, it follows that then psychological concepts are applicable across species to birds as well. And you had co-written a paper about avian affective dysregulation. Would you mind kind of telling us what you discovered there? Yeah. Before I do that, I just want to make a comment on psyche. Both you and I come from the tradition of depth psychology, which was the study or the acknowledgement and the recognition of the unconscious in a vaster sense than most of science has really looked at cognitive and really hasn't taken into account the unconscious as something that is particularly valid. So when we say psyche in the depth psychological context, it also refers to soul, which is the Greek root. So soul, sans the religious, whether you have religious connotations or not, is really talking about the depth of experience, the depth of being, and really grounding us in an understanding of bird existential and ontological existence. So the particular studies that you refer to were in conjunction with a sanctuary that rescues a lot of parrots. Mm -hmm. And they had called on me because when the post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, was identified in elephants, and my work also subsequent to that with chimpanzees, which diagnosed complex PTSD, and, and really delved into not just the labeling of it, but understanding from the soul level, because Trauma, psychological trauma, is an assault to the soul in its greatest depth. The sense of meaning is challenged, etc. So they asked me about, can we look at traumatology, the psychological, the neuropsychological foundation of trauma? Can we look at that lens at some of the individuals that come to us in rescue and sanctuary? And so one of the difficulties is a history. So, for example, in the elephant case, which was my dissertation and became a book. The reason why it wasn't thrown out, <laughs> that, it, that it got scientific and public acclaim, was because it was based in neurosciences. As I mentioned earlier, all animals have the structures and processes which govern the same thinking and feeling and consciousness that we recognize in ourselves. But also that there was a very well-documented data mm -hmm. in terms of the experience of these young elephants. These were young elephants who had experienced in South Africa a series, a succession of severe psychological traumas. And that is a very important component to diagnosing trauma. Mm -hmm. In fact, 
if it's understood that a person has experienced XYZ as these young elephants, for example, they were infants when they experienced this barrage of gunfire from helicopters. They witnessed their mothers and their families slaughtered. Then they were grabbed and tethered to the bodies of their families. Then they were transported. Then they were having to live on their own without any kind of family structure, which was with the natal family, and then the second level of socialization, which is with the male. So in other words, all of these processes, if you look at it from conventional science, all of the structures and processes that are responsible for creating who we become neuropsychologically were absent and compromised. So in the case of the parrots in rescue and sanctuary, oftentimes their biographies are unknown. Obviously, they have experienced trauma. One, they're living in a cage. <laughs> um, and they have symptoms of distress. We'll just call it distress in that way. So it was obvious, you know, from an intuitive, common sense way that they are traumatized. Most of them are wild caught or even captive bred. And those within the framework of traumatology are consistent with a severe trauma. But we wanted to really sort of map this and keep this somewhat rigorous to be able to communicate and convince avian doctors, veterinarians, and researchers that the diagnosis of complex PTSD is valid for birds. Mm -hmm. So what I did is I drew from a method which is attachment theory, and basically we picked out a number of individuals and we looked at their relationships. What was their relationship when they came to sanctuary? One, what were their symptoms? Uh, a lot of them were self-mutilating. Some of the sort of catatonic, et cetera, but also what were their natural affinities when they met another parrot? What was their natural affinity if they met a human, et cetera? And were they more comfortable? So basically we had two things and we looked at their attachment style. In other words, how they related to another person that is reflective of how we're brought up, how we develop. And then the other was in terms of, did they have any less or greater comfort level with one species or another, parrot or human? That in itself really told us or gave us a pointer to how they were raised. Mm -hmm. Were they raised as a baby in the company of humans? That would tend, as my chimpanzee studies show, that would tend to show that they had an affinity mm -hmm. for humans. A lot of people assume that birds will automatically get along better with other birds. Right. And it's not necessarily true if they are so culturally climatized, yes. for lack of a better word, to human beings, sort of nuances and expectations, then they may not prefer the company of a human. Exactly. And we see this with human children that are raised in different cultures. Some of the difficulty then is not understanding that, in other words, the environment, which includes, you know, bodies, humans, parrots, frogs, whatever, as well as quote unquote, the ecology, mm -hmm. what we experience on the outside really shapes what we are on the inside. So based on that, we did a kind of a dive, use that as a probe to really kind of try to, to reconstruct what their history and experience was. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was very, very powerful. It was very accurate. I think the most important Two important conclusions for that was, one, it really demonstrated in a rigorous scientific way to uh, the public as well as for avian uh, researchers and veterinarians that a psychological approach to parrots, in this case birds, is essential. You can't just look at what they're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, what they're doing is not enough. 
So we see that in ourselves. You know, we can see, watch ourselves or our children or someone else. And what they're doing says something, mm -hmm. but it doesn't say why. So that was a very important point. The other was in the sense of what we would call trauma recovery or care for that individual, that they're not cookie cut. And as you brought up, you can't just say, oh, a parrot will like another parrot. That is not true whatsoever. Mm -hmm. That is also the case for other species. For example, rabbits, like here in our sanctuary, have rabbits. Just because one rabbit is a rabbit, another rabbit, that doesn't mean they're going to get along. Mm -hmm. So it really gives us an appreciation for the depth and the complexity, and I would say profound respect for who that individual is. So when we see a parrot, you know, if we rescue or bring a parrot or bird into our home, the critical question is, who is that person? No, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, you brought up some really good points, and it reminds me of Luca's story, which we talked about a couple episodes ago, where he was basically given to my mom by someone who didn't have the time for him. But they just assumed that since she had a female blue and gold macaw, that everything would go perfectly smoothly. <laughs> and as folks who listen to that episode know, that wasn't really the case. And it was mainly that Cheyenne... Uh, the female, my sister, blue and gold macaw, she didn't like him. Luca was okay with her, but it didn't go both ways. So it also shows you, just as with humans, there's definitely a reciprocity and the direction flows both ways in any relationship. And so I think that that's incredible. And, and what a great diagnostic tool as well for those in bird rescues, because unfortunately there are a lot of homeless parrots out there. And a lot of them, like Luca, have fairly mysterious backgrounds. And so anything like that, that we can do to kind of unpack what had happened and understand what we're seeing is very helpful. The diagnosis of trauma and really sort of underscoring that parrots can and do have psychological trauma is also a very important concept to get across mm -hmm. because trauma, like any other experience, always changes the person who has experienced it. And for example, in parrots, they can get triggered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, bikes trigger Luca big time. We don't really know um, exactly how he had broken his left wing or potentially gotten some sort of traumatic brain injury that still gives him seizures, but our working theory is that it had something to do with a bike. Either that or he had some sort of adverse experience, like someone trying to force him on their shoulder during a bike ride or something like that, but every time he sees a bicycle, even if it's in the distance, just going past the window, he lets out these like crazy guttural screams and basically flips out. He runs all around his cage. He has a very overt reaction. And sometimes, I mean, he's the one that tells us there's a bike. We don't even realize that, you know, one of the kids is moving one or something until he's screaming and it's so intense that we know it has to be a bicycle. And that's another thing you bring up, which is really critical is we have to keep in, we have to be mindful that in this case, parrots, mm -hmm. they see and experience the world similarly to us, but there are vast differences. Mm -hmm. So for example, like you said, Luca can, um, just like Panama, you know, the mm -hmm. parrot who's lived with me. I mean, he can see a, when we're outside, he can see a golden eagle. I don't know how many thousands of mm -hmm. feet up. And he has cataracts. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. you know, even within that, he also barks when he hears a car, well before the dog. So he actually barks. And then of course the dogs start barking, you know, and then they get credit for it, right? <laughs> but the thing is, is that, you know, just like you talked about that they can see UV and things like that, we have to really appreciate it. And it's not just a, 
the notion that they see differently and, and all, it has to do with that's attached to their value system. That's attached mm -hmm. to their ontology, mm -hmm. what is meaningful in the world. And that's our responsibility as humans who are put in the position and they are put in the position of having to be dependent on a human um, when they're in captivity. It is incumbent upon us to really be open and receptive and sensitive to trying to understand what the gestalt of their world is and what is meaningful for them. Mm -hmm. That's a perfect segue as well to what we have today for the flocking news. The flocking news. Today's flocking news article is called Early Experiences Determine How Birds Build Their First Nest. And it was published May 12th, 2020. And it's a study out of the University of Alberta. So it was looking at early life experiences of zebra finches and discussing how those have a big effect on the construction of their first homes. So according to this study, the presence of an adult bird, as well as the types of materials available in early adolescence, influence two key aspects of first-time nest building, material preference and construction speed. The results show that as juvenile zebra finches embarked on building their first nest, most birds preferred to use materials to which they'd had access to while growing up, but only if an adult had also been present during this time. Further, birds who had not had juvenile access to an adult or material were between three and four times slower at nest building. So I think this is really important because it debunks the long-held myth that birds are just instinctual, that they'll just copy the nest that they were born in without necessarily thinking about it. And instead, we're seeing that there's these social and ecological cues that they're picking up on. But not only that, there's this intergenerational transfer of knowledge which you had brought up attachment theory with regard to parrots. I think this is a really important concept to sort of get our minds around, not just for parrots or people, but for other birds as well. I have to make a comment. I find studies like these very disturbing. The zebra finches are typically used, they're kind of like the lab rats. Mm -hmm. And um, they live horrible lives and they're manipulated and then they're dissected. Um, and it's really, you know, not to use this sort of iconic thing, but it's very Nazi medicine kind of approach to research. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to understand that they have to be treated in the same mm -hmm. way that we regard our own privacy and our ethics and things like that. They can't be manipulated. Research and education have to change radically, that we are not using uh, what, what does that information really serve? I mean, it does not serve the birds whatsoever. Now it does, you know, in the sense of people say, oh, wow, it does, we have this energy. We already have that information. Mm -hmm. In other words, the information is out there already. So we have to appreciate that these are individuals. They have lives, they have relationships, and they have culture. Um, and just appreciate it and know that and listen and learn rather than going in there and dissecting and finding out all these things and manipulating their lives. Mm -hmm. Certainly we as humans would object to that. And, and it has been done on humans and it continues to be done on humans in different ways, but um, it's considered to be um, a gross violation ethically. Yeah, you make a good point where presumably they could have gathered this information less intrusively just by observing wild finches or even just other species of bird and extrapolating to finches. 
in this particular study, they had used pink and orange nesting materials as the two that were sort of being <laughs> tested for. They didn't really mention any natural <laughs> nesting material color, so yeah, yeah, there's that as well. Um, would they have chosen something completely different if not sort of artificially put into this false choice of hot pink or hot orange? <laughs> so um, without further ado, today let's move on to bird tails. Today's bird tales are very special. I was hoping, Dr. Bradshaw, that you would share the story of you and your beautiful parrot, Panama. Yes, he's downstairs having breakfast right now. When I was about, oh, I think I was, I don't know how old I was. Anyways, the beginning story is we had a goose and a Muscovy duck, and uh, we lived in California at the time. And my mother and I were out buying goose food and things like that. And we were in a pet store. And um, I remember my mother going up to this cage where there was a parrot, an Amazon, yellow nape Amazon parrot, and saying, oh, I've always wanted a parrot. So anyways, time goes on. And uh, my mother's birthday rolled around in May, actually. And my father, increasingly, as I got older, would say, sweetie, what should we get your mother for her birthday? <laughs> I said, mother has always wanted a parrot. So anyways, that's what happened. And until they died, <laughs> they insisted that that was not true, that it was my scheme to get a parrot. But that's not true. That's not true. Sounds like something I um, <laughs> So uh, Panama came into our family, and um, he's a yellow nape. He was obviously captive caught, which is a dreadful, dreadful process. Um, he was about uh, 15 16, 16, between 15 and 20 years old. That's what we were told at the time. He spoke Spanish. He still does. And um, some interesting phrases. The one that is most salient is, por favor. Oh. <laughs> so um, anyway, so Panama and I, he, my brother had gone off to college and Panama and I were just like kind of brother and sister. I mean, he was older than me. But we kind of lived like brothers and sisters. You know, we had little squabbles and we would, you know, do things together and, you know, play under the covers and things like that. And well, so all about that, having the sibling, the parrot sibling, for sure. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so he was, you know, we were very, very close and, you know, I'd go to school, but I'd come back and spend most of my time. Uh, we had other animals, but it was always together. So we were very close. And then I went to college and I was away and I, I always used to visit my parents quite frequently. And I'd see Panama and everything like that. And then, you know, time went on and my mother was ill. And so I was settled. And so I, I took Panama to live with me. And he was very different to me then. He would bite me really hard. He would fly at me. He was angry. Um, he was very angry. And mm -hmm. it was like this radical change, just this radical change in our relationship. And I was really upset about it. You know, he never wanted to do the same things with me, you know, like take mm -hmm. showers and go under the covers. If we did go under the covers, it was like a giant bite. So um, I just make a comment about that. You know, parrots are usually bigger ones like an Amazon or like Luca. Their beaks are very, very powerful and they're very, very painful. And, and birds flying at you, you know, even people who are not quote unquote bird people. I mean, a lot of people like, 
run into say, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a bird person because they've had an experience, not necessarily a parrot, but a bird flying at them. For some reason, it's a disturbing thing for people. But certainly one with a big beak yeah. <laughs> that caused damage is upsetting. So I, w I wanted to bring that up because as it was in my case, it exacerbated my fear, you know, and my, you know, I don't want to get bitten. And then one day I just, um, I sat down, but we call it his white house. It's a big white cage. And I opened the door and I sat on the floor and I just told him, I'm so sorry. And now you know, I realized um, this was prior to my trauma work professionally that I had abandoned him and he was so angry and so grieved. Mm -hmm. And I just started crying mm -hmm. and he climbed down and he came over and he, you know, he kind of started grooming with each other. Um, and after that time, um, our relationship changed. Um, however, um, I, I was married, I still am. And my, he became, I introduced him to my husband mm -hmm. and that was a real big deal. Cause <laughs> That's he, did not, he, he didn't know anything about birds and <laughs> <a week. laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> um, now Panama has really bonded with him very closely and adores him. And it's kind of strange though. There's some very interesting things like, and again, not that I, you know, I feel like sort of like a hammer in search of a nail, but truly the trauma is very, very important. Mm -hmm. And we can think about traumas in the sense of what has happened to that person and how mm -hmm. do they integrate it? Mm -hmm. So Panama gets very upset. I don't want to put a particular label on it, like jealous, but he gets really, he gets, does not like it if I show affection, I mean, this is like anticipatory affection <laughs> to another family member. So if um, like Tommy, our rabbit is a paraplegic, if I go over and start, you know, cuddling or just to say hi or the cat or the dog, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. He goes like this, <laughs> which means he's going to launch. Sounds like he's read your books and he can see beyond species, I think. <laughs> oh yeah. And, and so what's interesting about it is that my husband, he can walk over, you know, mm -hmm do something with the dog, you know, pick mm -hmm. up one of our cats, nothing. And yet he's bonded very deeply. And I think that essentially um, the way I understand it is that Panama still feels deeply betrayed mm -hmm. by me. Mm -hmm. And that those responses are just, it's like kind of a, you know, reminds me of, you know, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, um, you know, they don't really realize it from the bird's point of view where to you, you were just going to college and doing the things mm -hmm. that humans are supposed to do. And you know where you were and that you were coming back. And but he can't really understand all of that. And in any other context and in the wild, a parrot whose mate essentially, or someone that they're bonded to disappears. Usually that means that they're killed by like a jaguar or something. But once he saw you again, it was almost probably kind of a double betrayal because he probably assumed, yeah, you're off petting other rabbits and humans. And <laughs> I think it forced on him. Um, it, it was very difficult. I think it was extremely difficult for him to put these two things together. You know, for example, I'll just give an example. I'm sure, I don't know, this happens to me. Like, you know, someone that I love, a human, okay, mm -hmm. that I love or they're supposed to be back at eight o'clock. Mm -hmm. Well, it's 10 o'clock. Something happened. Mm -hmm. That's really weird because she usually calls, you know, you get into these things like, Oh my God, you know, and it's midnight, you know, should I call the police? You know, da, 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 da. Right. And then, you know, your daughter calls and says, 
oh, we were just going out and having fun. And then your fear and your credible love and anxiety turns into, God damn it, what? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And, um, and I think in a sense, you know, in a more, more profound, serious way that that's really, I think he's resolved it to a certain extent. I mean, to a large extent in that mm-hmm. way. And I want to also bring up something that, um, when Panama is not feeling well, mm-hmm. when he feels vulnerable, um, he is is more comfortable with me. Mm-hmm. It's not when, and when I say more comfortable, it's just that he kind of goes back to the nest. Mm-hmm. He does in a sense, I am one of his nest mates, which mm-hmm. doesn't mean he doesn't love my husband. It's just this kind of familial, you know, urge, I think, in that sense. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that um, people laugh a lot because we laugh the same. <laughs> So, you know, um, and it's contagious when he and I start laughing, oh, yeah. you know, or he'll hear me on the phone. And I typically, you know, if he hears me laughing, you know, on the phone, that's okay. Uh, but uh, he does other things like, for example, you know, if I'm on a boring conversation, and he starts going, uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> Luca does too. Uh-huh. You know, with this no affect kind of thing. So what I mean is, is that, you know, I would say the way I, I he had, a, has had a tremendous effect on my psyche mm-hmm. and i i think there's a very powerful panama amazon ingredient mm-hmm. in my psyche and um i wrote about that in about chimpanzees this bicultural identity and we touched on it before but i know very deeply that he was a tremendous has affected me tremendously i think i have on him as well mm-hmm. in terms of that but we share a culture Mm-hmm. And, and and more than just the culture, it's the psychological makeup. I remember uh, several years ago when I was working on my dissertation on parrot and poultry psyche, and uh, you had asked me what parts of my psyche are avian, and that really has got me thinking pretty much every day since. It's important to realize, just as with relationships as we talked in the beginning, it, it does flow both ways, and my identity as is informed by Luca as his is by mine, so when you brought up this notion of like the flock, you know, someone disappears and they died, it's terrible. I started looking at, you know, you, you've talked about flocks, that psyche, the, the parrot psyche, that it's more like a field than an individual encased intra-psychic psyche, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so it's a field and that field to be healthy needs to maintain its wholeness. Mm-hmm. And so what that requires me, what that requires us who live in a multi-species um, uh, home, or we do anyhow, we, we, we all do, we just, some of us are more explicit than others, is to be very mindful of uh, retaining and, and nurturing this psyche field. Because that psychic field is a kind of source of nurturance. No, it's not just me and Panama, you know, it has to do with, we have a field and it's understanding how to keep that vital and, and alive and, and healthy. I think the concept of a field is, is very helpful because it's not just sort of a line between two people. There's this whole space in between and so many things can happen in there that are even maybe greater than the sum of the parts, right? Not just my psyche, not just yours, but when ours come together, there's something even more magical that happens in that third space in that field. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for sharing your story um, about you in Panama. I know a lot of people have probably seen your photo together on the back of books and things like that. And I know that I, when I first met you, was super curious. And so 
He's uh, 70 now. Oh my gosh. Wow. So, uh, it's, uh, it's a very poignant time. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a testament to um, how much love and consistency that you've shown once you did realize how much he needed you to be there and be present. And um, a lot of birds in captivity don't make it that long because of fatty liver and all this other things. So kudos to you for, you know, keeping <laughs> up his, his exercise and, and being so attentive to what he needs. So Panama pretty much has always just sort of lived free. You know, we, we put him in a cage in his white house, as we call it, um, uh, for certain periods. And um, he's an Amazon and um, we don't let him loose outside. We've never mm -hmm. done that. Not because he would run away. The fear had been that he would get disoriented somehow and not be able to come back. I don't know if it's really real. It has happened with other parrots. But anyways, in order for him to maintain you know, his health, I would fly him. And he's not, a, I don't know whether it's just Panama or not. He's not like, he's one of these people that's like, you know, I'll just sit here you know, be with you, have a snack. Mashed you know. potato bird. <laughs> yeah, a mashed potato bird and, you know, talk and, you know, talk with the other animals and, you know, walk around, but, uh, but he's not like, I'm going to go to the gym every day. <laughs> so what I would do is, and we did this for many years, is we opened the doors of our, um, and I would fly him about 50 times the length of the house, back and forth, mm -hmm. back and forth which was about a half a mile, you know, and, uh, you know, I would, you know, let him go and then he would fly and then I'd waddle yeah. with him and, you know, fly back. You know, it wasn't like, oh, wow, I really want to fly. You know, it wasn't at all. Exercise for both of you. Exactly. So we did that. And then he started uh, a few years ago, he started like crashing, which is dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, he started his eyesight failed. Mm. And he has cataracts, as I mentioned. So we were unable to do that. And that, that was really hard. I mean, mm -hmm. one, on, it really maintained his health. And, and it just is, that's what they do. They fly. Mm -hmm. Even though it was kind of a forced march flying, he had fun. We had fun together. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's kind of like going to the gym with a girlfriend. It's like, oh, God. But if you've got someone to do it with, it's kind of like, yeah. And that's what they're built to do is fly. So that was a really hard thing. And, um, of course, there was weight gain. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there was me because for, you know, I would just knuckle under. He'd say, por favor, you know, Aww. and then, you know, at times he'd go, por favor, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I just knuckle under and, okay, well, here's a tiny little crust or something, you know, and the doctor, we have a, a wonderful avian doctor who is a saint who has known my family and me mainly for many, many moons. And he always, whenever we go for a checkup, and, and Panama, he's, he's had some strokes. And so he's on medication, and he was down with a specialist in the Bay Area. And it's because of, you know, the fatty liver type of thing, hepatitis. So the do doctor here, he's such a saint. He goes, well, you know, it would be really important if he could lose, you know, maybe 20 grams and da-da-da. You just need to do this. <laughs> so... Finally, after so many years, I got trained, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was hard. It was me, not Panama. Mm -hmm. So um, Knockwood, he's doing well. We, we, we watch his weight and everything, and we take him outside now because he can't fly. And pretty much the most important thing, I think, with the aging component is trying to find things where he can be active. It's really important, mental and physical. Never isolated, never isolated. Mm -hmm. I mean, no one's isolated in this house because we have so many funny animals. But what I mean is always engaged, always engaged. Like he's part of it. We take him places 
we take him to the a veterinarian unless it's an emergency situation mm -hmm. because he gets anxious. Mm -hmm. You know, that's an, a really important point is that um, they're flock people. They want to be involved. They want to know what's going on. They want to be participatory in terms of even if it's not involving them. And so information is really important to see what's going on. Because that's the other thing is he is so tuned into my emotions, which is something I've had to work on mm -hmm. because I get distressed and stressed very easily if someone gets sick um, or something goes on. So I have to engage in my own program of affect regulation, but also engage him to let him know what's going on in terms of, you know, this is what's going on and this is what we're doing. So I would say that's the most important thing, at least in our case, is to be mindful of not being isolated, you know, because he can't see as well. He can't move around as well. Mm -hmm. And so we need to move with him to engage with him so that he does not get isolated in that mm -hmm. sense. You know, it's, it's difficult with aging and parrots because they do live so long. And um, I feel really fortunate that Luca and I are close to the same age so that hopefully we can help each other through it. You know, I think that's a huge sort of shadow side of, you know, pet stores and always wanting a parrot and maybe not getting one until later in life is oftentimes they're going to be a lot younger than you are. And people don't even think about estate planning and involving parrots, but it really is a reality. And when people don't really think about it, or they don't have a relative who feels up to the task and the challenge, because they're not just getting sort of this tabula rasa parrot, right? They're getting one that's already bonded to mm -hmm. um, and going through the grief of losing the same parent um, that they had. And so it's even more complicated than just sort of starting from scratch with a new relationship. And uh, there can be resentment there. And I read somewhere that there was one lady that even got, her parrot got euthanized and they got cremated together, which I thought was fairly macabre, but you know, just devil's advocate wise, maybe that's what she saw as the best alternative to not wanting her bird to go from home to home inside of some sort of foster or adoption sort of system. Well, I've heard um, experiences of individuals where they're typically through a rescue situation. And, and this is in cockatoos. Cockatoos, and I, I don't know whether this has been resolved yet, but they have a tendency to self-mutilate seemingly more than other parrots. Mm -hmm. And um, I've heard a number of cases where, you know, this situation, they have either been relinquished or the, their human companion has died. And then that has led to relinquishment. Uh, and they have basically committed suicide by picking themselves to death. We had talked about this a little bit on last week's episode with Gur the Sun Conyer. And it's amazing how quickly it can go from everything seeming fine to, yes. you know, they start to pick one feather and then some are completely bald and cockatoos in particular, I've heard they'll do it all the way down to their like bone. And just today I was reading this story about um, a woman, she lives in Australia. So she lives where cockatoos are, are native. And I guess she was feeling sort of remorseful about she hand reared this cockatoo and he didn't seem to be happy or or getting everything that he needed. And so she spent a lot of time training him sort of how to be wild, because as we discussed earlier, he was more attuned to sort of human culture. And so she spent a great deal of time. And of course, it was risky. And I would not necessarily recommend it. But she did release him into the wild. And just today, she reported that he had found a wild mate. 
and she hadn't seen him for, you know, several months. And so, of course, she was like, oh, gosh, thinking something terrible had happened to him. And she was outside working and he found her and came up to her. And that was really great because they got to sort of have a few moments of giggles and, you know, scratches and stuff. But then his mate came and retrieved him and said, hey, it's time to go. And then he went off with his wild flock. So um, it's amazing when that can happen. But unfortunately, that's usually the exception rather than the rule. So thank you for sharing your story about you and Panama. Uh, let's wrap it up with a bird of advice. A bird of advice. Today's bird of advice, Gay, you have brought to the table here, and that is the idea that traumatized birds will continue to get triggered potentially in the future, and that trauma doesn't go away. Uh, therefore, we do need to work with our environment in order to not trigger. Well, Luca's triggered now because now he's done with his snacks. I would like to say that all captive-held birds are traumatized. If you look at the difference between how that individual and where that individual would live, say, for example, Panama would be in the jungles of Costa Rica, likely. That was where, probably where he came from in a flock with very, very deep lasting relationships, et cetera. And then you look at the way he lives now, that is a measure of the stress that they sustain. And trauma is when there's these events of overwhelming, like for example, when he was wild caught yeah, and taken away and transported and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I would say that my um, abrupt leaving mm -hmm. was a kind of a trauma on trauma in that sense. Mm -hmm. So with that understanding, meaning appreciate the sensitivity, appreciate how much uh, a captive held bird is really trying to recreate life in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And that they are so sensitive and in such need of connection, positive connection, truly open-hearted love and care. And when a parrot does something that we don't like, you know, that's a lot of the, the discourse about parrots is how do you fix, you know, same with dogs, same with, you know, that most of the discourse has to do with how to fix a problem. Yeah. And usually the problems identified are the natural behaviors in like the, the forest ecosystem, screaming to stay in touch, making mulch by destroying all of your furniture and dispersing seeds throughout the yeah. house. <laughs> yep. And and so it's understanding that and then even understanding something like that is distress. Those are quote unquote natural. I mean, for example, at Panama, I mean, we have so many things. I gave up at one point, you know, when, I mean, this is not just Panama, it has to do with our other animals, you know. Um, this is their home, you know, and, and we do have sort of certain boundaries just so everything doesn't become totally dilapidated. But um, it's their home and the trigger can happen um, without even, you know, you know, the bicycle thing. So one thing is, you know, okay, now you're aware of that. So mm -hmm. what do you do? Because you don't want to experience re-traumatization and that kind of distress is really unpleasant. And, mm -hmm. and look at ourselves as that. Who wants to relive something that was, could range from something like just a bad memory to mm -hmm. something that is truly traumatic. So mm -hmm. we want to avoid that for their well-being, so that they don't have to go through that. The other is, is that they can be triggered. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, let's say something happens and they start screaming and whatever. Um, that's part of trauma. 
So avoiding it as much as possible in the sense of, you know, creating an environment where they're not triggered in that sense. But when they do go through some kind of phase like that, for, for whatever reason, be understanding, not punishing, not making anything negative about the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Just be there and as much as possible, be supportive and reassuring for that individual. I think you've picked up on just what I would add, which is, you know, we talk about sort of looking at the environment so as not to trigger, but we forget oftentimes that we are sort of embedded in that environment. And so mm -hmm. we need a shift in certain ways in our psyche in yeah. order to accommodate what's going on. And yeah. I think one of the keywords that comes up for me a lot in my relationships with the birds in the flock or even the other animals with whom I share my home, including people, would be compromise. Uh, we don't always get what we want, but we try to make the most win-win situations as possible on any given day in any given moment. So, you know, Luca may be a little bit more frustrated than he wants on certain times. I may be more frustrated than I want on certain times, but as long as we're about even, then that means the reverse is also true that we're both being satiated uh, on the other times as well. And so I think that that's something as human beings, we're used to sort of just sort of bossing around other species or, or kind of assuming that we know what's right or what's best. And mm -hmm. we're a bit obnoxious in that regard and a bit like bulls in a china shop once you consider that the china is the psyches mm -hmm. that are often very fragile of birds and other creatures that are around mm -hmm. us, including human children as well. So I think that that's really important to not only soften the environment, but to soften our own psyches as well in certain ways. Well, you know, I, I love the way you put that in. And I would say that be mindful of re relational fidelity. And uh, the notion when we talked about that the psyche is really a field. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, one way to really feel is like that we have these elastic bands that connect us all, right? Sometimes it gets a little stretched. Sometimes it gets a little more contracted, but it's always there. And if you see that you are, you know, you have this elastic band with, you know, Luca and mm -hmm. I have with Panama and, and these things is appreciate that you may feel like me. I might like kind of go off and, you know, everything's fine. Mm -hmm. But meanwhile, what's going on? So being present, you know, try to hold presence. Uh, even like when I'm sitting there on the computer or whatever, just be mindful that that other individual is there and, and is living life. They're not just a blob in mm -hmm. a cage, mm -hmm. that there's, there's things going on. And this gets back to what I said, is, is realize that we're participating in a relationship, even when there are things that we each need to be doing mm -hmm. as individuals. Well, and as co-host today, Luca has done a great job of demonstrating that. For a little while, he wanted to play in the curtains, and he needed snacks, and he pooped on my foot. So, um, yeah, meanwhile, I wanted him to just be a cooperative co-host. So we both <laughs> compromised, and here we are, and yeah. <laughs> going to do some, some cute flapping and uh, self-preeding now. But, uh, yeah, for the rest of the time, yeah. we are compromising over the other things he wanted to do instead. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining our flock today and thank for being you. such a great mentor and, dare I say, friend. I really appreciate having your views and just having your companionship as well. So thank you, Dr. Bradshaw, you. for being here. So that's it for season one of <laughs> Dr. Crow's Bird Show. Uh, we do plan, like birds in the Southern Hemisphere, to be back in the fall. So we do hope we'll see you again. 
Thank you to our listeners. Thank you for all of our special guests. And on behalf of Luca and I and all the members of the flock, thank you all for such a flocking good time. Doctor Crow turns on the radio. Doctor Crow.